Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Nabil Karishi was as Muslim as Muslim could be. He was raised in a devout Muslim home. His grandfather, his great-grandfather were Muslim missionaries in Indonesia and Uganda. Nabil described his zeal for Islam saying, I felt confident in the truth of Islam. It gave me discipline, purpose, morals, family values, clear direction for worship. Islam was the lifeblood that coursed through my veins, he said. Islam was my identity, and I I loved it. I, I boldly issued the call of Islam to anyone and everyone who would listen, proclaiming that there is no God but Allah and that Muhammad was his prophet. One day while in college, though, Nabil met a guy named David who was a Christian. David did not reject him, nor was David bothered by Nabil's faith or his constant attacks upon the Christian faith. David patiently and methodically helped Nabil to understand the truth of the Christian faith. After graduating from college, Nabil began to pray, God, tell me who you are. If you are Allah, show me how to believe in you. If you are Jesus, tell me. Whoever you are, I will follow you no matter the cost. You can probably guess the outcome of the story. Nabil gave his life to Christ, became a prominent Christian apologist until he died just a few years ago, uh, an untimely death due to stomach cancer. You know, Nabil's story, though dramatic due to his circumstances, it's, it's no different than your story or, or my story. That which was dead has been made alive. These, these dry bones that we sang about earlier, they've been given new life. That is the message that we celebrate this weekend. On Friday, Jesus died without a doubt, without caveat, without any question. If Friday were the end of the story, well, we could all go home today, couldn't we? We could all go home today. We could not come back. We could close the doors up, turn the electricity off, and and call it quits if Friday is the end of the story. Thank God it isn't. Amen? Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, I love the way that it tells, uh, tells of this, this day that we celebrate today. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, or by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that, that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified him and killed him by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Not possible for death to contain him. Yeah, this morning I want us to cast our eyes to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll get back into our Proverbs series next week for the second half of that study, but I wanted to take a break since Resurrection Day falls right there in the halfway point. You know, it is interesting to me that we celebrate Easter on this day, but really any time we gather on Sundays as the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we gather in memory of, of, as a reminder of the resurrection. And so we all look good. We all dress up for Easter. I put a, put a bow tie on. I look like I could sell you a used car after the service today. But, uh, but we all try to look good for Easter Sunday. But really every time we gather as the body of Christ, whether it's in this house or outside or, or even back in the early time of the pandemic when we gather scattered across our, our rooms, we, across our homes, we gather in celebration of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so while this day is one that we set apart, we ought to remember that Jesus is alive every time we get together. Amen? Uh, so if you've got your Bible there in Ephesians chapter 2, I invite you to stand with me as we read these verses. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, says this. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by our nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God, I want to thank you for the way that you intervene and change the course of human history. I want to thank you for the way that you intervene and change the course of my history. Lord, I want to thank you for Jesus, who died on that Friday, but death could not contain him. And on that Sunday morning, he rose again. So Lord, we gather today to celebrate a risen Savior and to consider the work of salvation which he has presented to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. You know, when you look at this chapter in the book of Ephesians, you will find that the first nine verses contain the worst news in the world, as well as the best news in the world. The Apostle Paul is looking at us, and he's saying this. He says, I've got bad news, and I've got good news. Now, typically, when somebody says that to you, they say, which one do you want to hear first? I don't know what you guys are. I'm a bad news first kind of guy. I want to get the bad news over with so I can hear the good news, right? The, the bad news makes the good news all the more sweeter. Well, Paul doesn't give us that opportunity. He doesn't tell us, he doesn't give us a chance to, to, to figure it out, to, to make a choice. He tells us what the bad news is, and the bad news is bad. And you read this, and it's, if it's describing you, this is bad news for you. It's bad news for me. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of the disobedient. What a terrible, terrible predicament we're in when you think about it. Paul goes on in verse 12 of chapter 2 to describe it further. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He's describing who we were. He says we were alienated outside of the people of God. We were outside of God's promises. We were hopeless and we were godless you were here on Friday night, then you know how dire this predicament was. You know how irreversible the dilemma actually is. There's absolutely nothing that can undo death except that which is stronger than death. Now, if we only knew something or someone that was stronger than death, if there was something that could give us hope, something that could break the chains of death, you know, Paul gives us 
He uses one of the most powerful words in the Bible in this, in this passage. It's really powerful when God is the subject of this very short word. In the Greek, the, the word, interestingly enough, is, is Allah, but it's spelled differently than how Islam talks about their God. In Hebrew, the word is ulam, but for English speakers, the word is simply the conjunction but, B-U-T. And that word, when we see it in writing, is, is designed to introduce a change of direction. It's intended to contrast something that has already been stated. And it's just the word that we need to show us how people who were dead in their trespasses and sins, people who were hopeless and godless, how those people could possibly see their life turned around. And it just so happens that it's the word the Apostle Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 2 to take us from the worst news in the world to give us the best news in the world. That simple word with God as the subject is simply that, but God. You know, the Bible is full of those but God moments. Moments where the story is going one direction and God intervenes suddenly, dramatically, and changes the course of the story. I love the, the passage in Genesis chapter 50, thinking about Joseph. Joseph had, had been sold into slavery by his brothers. You know his story. He had a terrible experience when he was in Egypt, but God works in Joseph's lives to, to exalt him, to bring him to a place of prominence where ultimately Joseph was able to be the deliverer of a whole bunch of folks because of how God used the negative things in his life to bring about good in his life ultimately. And as he meets his brothers, the one who sold him into slavery, he, he confronts them and he says in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me. Oh, but there's our phrase. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be saved as they are today. Psalm 73 verse 26, the psalmist declares there, my flesh and my heart may fail. You ever felt that way? Where your flesh and your heart have fallen? Not, not medically. Maybe you, medically you have experienced that. Not medically, but, but just emotionally, spiritually, where, where everything has been taken away from you, the rug has been pulled out from under you, you, think it's your, you look at your life and you pray, you cry out, God, my heart and my flesh have failed. Maybe over the course of this last year, You've experienced that personally where everything seems to have been stripped away. What are you going to do? Well, guess what the psalmist does? He says, my flesh and my heart fail, but God, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Over in Romans chapter 5, this but God is at the, at the heart of the gospel. Romans chapter 5, verse 7 and 8 says, For scarcely for a righteous man will someone die. Yeah, perhaps for a good man. Someone would even dare to die. He's talking about the fact that, that people just don't up and die for other people just on a whim. And if you're an evil person, nobody's going nobody's to die for you. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The only thing that can move us from the terrible news of our death and sin to our new life in Christ is one of these but God moments. 
And in this but God moment, we see something happen that apart from God, we are absolutely helpless to address. Paul said that we were dead, that while we were dead, God made us alive in Christ. Understand this, we don't have the power to fix dead, right? We've realized all sorts of remarkable accomplishments in terms of medicine and health care. We've overcome terrible diseases. Hopefully we are well on our way to defeating COVID-19 and whatever else it, gets, it, it, it morphs into. But one of the things that we have to recognize that in all of our advances in medicine, nobody has been able to figure out how to take a man who was put in the morgue and bring him back to life again. Nobody who's in the morgue has ever been brought back to life again. We don't have the means to fix that. You know, the Bible doesn't mince words, nor is it careless with its words. So when it refers to our spiritual condition as one that is akin to death, that means something. We were dead, but God, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's the only thing that could change that scenario. It's the only thing that could change that story. It's the only thing that could change the outcome is for God to intervene, for God to interject, for God to make a change. And he did just that through the person of Jesus. Which begs the question, why would he do such a thing? It says it's because of his mercy and because of his love. What a precious gift that is. I don't know what you think about when you think about mercy, but what comes to my mind is that I deserve one thing, but I get something far better. I think of compassion towards someone without concern for the choices and the circumstances that put them in their situation. When we talk about God's mercy, we have to recognize the fact that our rebellion against the holy God deserves nothing short of death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. But God, in His mercy, He doesn't condemn us. Instead, He receives us as His very own children. We are criminals. But our judge declares us to be his children. And God can do just that because justice was satisfied on the cross. Jesus died in our place for our sins. Justice was completely satisfied. And now God demonstrates to us that he is abundantly merciful. Honestly, he'd have to be. Considering the lengths he was willing to go to to demonstrate how much he loved us. Again, Romans 5 for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, God's mercy is a product of his love. God's mercy is, is overflowing to us because of his character of love. What a simple word, though. God loves you. Let that settle in. God loves you. Say it to yourself. God loves me. God loves me. And, and that's a world that the word desperately needs to hear today, that God loves you. He is, he is for you. He is not against you. 
He would not go to the lengths that he went to if he were against us. If he were against us, then there would be no but God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, the story would simply end with us being dead, alienated, hopeless, and godless. He would be perfectly justified to give us that which we deserve. But God goes even further than that. He goes even further than dying for us while we were dead in our sins. He goes further than, than paying our debt. He goes further than giving us life. Paul says in verse 6 here that he promises to exalt us. That's too much. I don't deserve that. I don't deserve that kind of gift. I don't deserve that kind of, that kind of reach. I don't deserve that, Lord. He promises to exalt us. Verse 6 in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, this is speaking to us like it's actually happened because that's how certain God's promises are. He doesn't say, I'm going to do this. He says, I have done this, because God keeps his word. So even though all of us have got a pulse, and it looks like we passed the mirror test, you know, fog of mirror, none of us are in heaven yet, but God says, I've already accomplished this. It's a done deal. It's as good as sealed. We went from being dead and hopeless to alive and hopeful, and one day we will be glorified with Christ and we will be seated with Him in the heavenlies. And God said, let me not only tell you I'm going to do this, let me give you a glimpse of what it's going to look like. Let me show you a picture of what it's going to be like to dwell in the immeasurable riches of His love and the immeasurable riches of His grace. Over in Revelation chapter 7, the Apostle John was looking around heaven and listen to what he saw in verse 9 of Revelation 7. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's you. That's me. That's already been spelled out for us. God has said, let me show you what it looks like to be exalted, to be with Christ. You're going to be in heaven, and you're going to be wearing white choir robes, and you're going to be part of heaven's choir, and you're going to be given palm branches, and you're going to be singing. It's probably songs you've never heard before. It may be songs you know. I don't know. I've, I've often wondered what songs we sing in heaven. Does our hymn book make it in, make it in at all? But the Bible says we're going to sing a new song, so you better get used to it today. But we're going to be part of this great, robust, heavenly choir, and Jesus is going to be at the center of it, and we're going to worship him and celebrate our risen Savior forever and ever and ever. Amen. And we've got company. Verse 11. And all the angels. All the angels. I don't know how many that is. All the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom 
and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were alienated, hopeless, lost, separated from God. But God intervenes through the cross, gives you new life, new hope, a new relationship, makes you brand new, and promises one day this incredible picture where you will be joined with all the saints and all of heaven's angels and Jesus will be the centerpiece of all our attention. What a story. We will then see the immeasurable riches of his grace when we gather with all the myriad of angels and all the redeemed of the earth and we celebrate our salvation. That is a mind-blowing story. But that is reality for every single human being who's put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. Don't forget this. We don't deserve any of it. <laughs> we don't deserve any of it. The most memorized passage in all the book of Ephesians is, of course, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. This passage really is kind of like an exclamation point at the end of this entire section. For it's by grace you have been saved. What exactly does it mean when he talks about being saved? We talk about this a lot. You hear somebody give a testimony, I was saved when I was a child. But being saved implied that there was danger. When I was a small child, I remember swimming in my neighbor's pool and I fell in the deep end. I was on a float and I slid off the float and I fell in the deep end. I couldn't swim. And did you know screaming underwater doesn't work? No one can hear you scream. But my grandmother was there, she was on the float, and she saw me fall off, and she saw me uh, in danger. And she wasn't a lifeguard, but she had a big foot. And she stuck her big foot down in the water, and I was able to reach up and grab her foot, and she was able to pull me up out of the water and save me. I have no problem whatsoever declaring that that day in that swimming pool, my grandmother saved me. She saved me from danger. She saved me from death. I was going to die if she did not save me that day. We talk about being saved spiritually. It implies, though, that there is danger. And when we properly understand Ephesians chapter 2, we must understand the danger that we were in. We were dead, and we were in danger of staying that way. We were enslaved in our sin, and we were in danger of never being released. We were held in bondage to our hopelessness and despair, and we were in danger of never knowing what hope looks like. We were in danger of being godless and forever alienated from God. Man, that's a good phrase right there. But God. God saved us. 
He saved us from this danger, not by our merit, according to these words, but by His grace. He saved us not because we deserved it, but because God showed us mercy and grace. God saved us not because we first loved Him or because we brought something to the, uh, to the table that, that's desirable. God saved us. Because He is a loving God. God saved us not because we earned it, but because of His mercy. God forbid that we ever approach the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ with a sense of entitlement that I belong here, that I deserve this. We do deserve the cross. We do not deserve to be saved. When we approach the cross, the empty tomb, we must approach it as people deserving death, but having been gifted with new life. If you think for a second that your good works will get you anywhere, the Bible couldn't be clear that your good works will not get you to heaven. Your good works can deceive you straight to hell. Paul says that salvation is not something that we earn. Rather, it is something that is given to us as a gift. I want to talk to you right now that if you're in this room and you are not a Christian, you've never given your life to Christ, you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior, I need to warn you today that you are in grave jeopardy. You may stand up and walk out of here and not know the, the threat. But you need to understand that if you are not in Christ, you are in grave danger. You are hopeless and godless, and you are walking today as a dead person in your trespasses and sin, yet God has extended an offer to you. He has made you a deal, and you would be foolish to turn your back on it. He is willing to, in Christ, give you a new life and guarantee that for eternity you will celebrate Him in heaven. Nothing will ever pluck you from His hand. You will be secure forever and ever in Christ. It is a gift. But the gift only has merit if you receive it. I would invite you to bow your heads for a moment. I want to speak right now to those in this gathering who've never put their faith and trust in Christ. You've heard the danger that you're in. You've heard your condition be described. There's absolutely no reason in this world for you to walk away and not do business with the Lord. There's absolutely no reason in this world today that you not look to this gift that's been extended to you, not because you've earned it, but through God's grace and mercy. He wants to rescue you. He wants to save you. He is for you, not against you. He wants to deliver you from your sin and set you on a new path. You may feel like the direction that you are going is the only direction that you can go. But over and over and over again, the Bible is clear that God wants to take people going in one direction and set them on a different pathway going a different one. 
Yes, if you are not in Christ, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You, are a, you have offended God's righteousness. But in His grace and in His love, He wants to take your unrighteousness and exchange it for His own righteousness. He wants to take your wickedness, your sin, and on the cross where the work's already been done, He wants you to place your faith and trust in Jesus. The Bible makes it very clear that God doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants all to come to eternal life and faith. And he's done everything necessary to accomplish the work. He's extended the gift to you if you'll but receive it. And you receive that gift today very simply. In your heart, maybe even aloud, you talk to God. You mean what you say. Say, Lord, I am a sinner. I am dead in my trespasses and sins. I am hopeless and godless. And I am alienated from you. But you did everything on the cross needed to overcome this. Say, Lord, I, I believe in all my heart that Jesus died on the cross in my place. It was my place to be on that cross. But Jesus took my place because of his great love. And Lord, in the same way that he died, I so now to, to, today would want to die to that old self. But Jesus conquered death and rose again to walk in newness of life in the same way that I can be granted a new life today in Christ. In just a few moments, we're going to have a time to sing and respond. And I would, I would just ask, if you're here, and maybe that prayer, maybe that time you've talked to God today just now, maybe it's the first time you've ever had that conversation with the Lord. And you're ready to walk a pathway of following Jesus today. I'd love to have an opportunity to have a conversation with you about what that looks like and what that means. I'd love for you in just a few moments to, to come and take my hand and say, Pastor, I want, to, I want to follow Christ. Find a trusted believer nearby you and say, help me understand what it means to follow Jesus. Don't leave here in the same condition in which you arrived here today. Let God transform your heart. Let God do a but God moment in your life today. Father, you know the petition that has been made today. You know the condition of the hearts in the room. Lord, I would ask now in these moments of response that you would lay on our hearts, God, if there's a need for any here today to put their faith and trust in you, to walk with you in a new way today to turn from their sin, to turn to Christ, that you would give them the courage and the confidence to, to confront that, to say yes, to receive the gift that's been extended to them. Don't let them leave, Lord, in the same condition in which they got here. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. 
If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon. Thank you.